This is Structure, the podcast. I'm Sam Ward. And I'm Michelle Rose. We talk to the designers and minds behind the most creative products in the outdoor industry. What's it like to hit the fabric store with Kanye West? Our guest today, Alex Waldman, knows the answer. As someone who thinks deeply about design, Alex has had the opportunity to shape and transform entire lines at some of the world's leading brands. We talk with Alex about the inspiration and the mentors that have shaped his design philosophy. My name is Alex Waldman. I'm a designer, uh, currently based in London, originally from, uh, I guess, California, you could say. And um, I work for a brand called Rafa at the moment. Welcome to the Structure Podcast. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you. So we wondered if you could start off by telling us how you got started in design. Yeah, so um, I think the pathway to design was quite natural. Uh, my grandfather was uh, tailor slash entrepreneur, so he really uh, always encouraged me to kind of work for myself uh, ever since I was ever since I can remember, actually. Uh, he was always uh, really against uh, the school system and just really told me that from the youngest age I should just start my own business. And my mom, she was a designer and uh, pattern maker, so learned a lot from her. And my stepdad worked at Adobe, so I was exposed to, mm. <laughs> I guess, the basic tools of communication from an early age as far as Photoshop and Illustrator goes. So I feel quite fortunate to, to have been brought up in a house where all of this was happening constantly. And I guess for me, I guess my first real venture into design was probably graphic design. I used to do a lot of album covers and whatnot for uh, various bands. So then from there, you started a business pretty early, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how you started Homeroom? I was in school and I had this internship at Hedge Funds. I wasn't making any money. I had, I think, $60 in my account and I wanted just some clothing. Uh, so I went to the fabric shop. I think it was Joanne's on, I don't know, in Westlake or something by SF <laughs> State. And um, I saw these these two fabrics that I really, I don't know, that just kind of st- stood out. So I made a hoodie that was reversible. I had worked at True, which was a streetwear store on Haight. So I wore the hoodie down to True to show Mike Brown, who was the owner, just to get his you know take on it because it was something in my mind where I was like, wow, this is quite interesting. And so I was walking down to True uh, and this lady stops me and she's like, hey, what are you wearing? I said, oh, something I made. She's like, what's your brand called? I said, well, I don't have one. You know, I go to SF State. I'm an intern at this hedge fund. And she's like, that's crazy that you don't have a brand. If you ever want to start a brand, give me a call. I'd love to feature this hoodie in my magazine. And it was a freelance writer for Complex Magazine. And at that time, Complex was everything. It was before social media. It was before blogs. Complex was the only way that you know you could digest streetwear outside of you know your circle. And so it was a big ego boost going into True. And I went into True, kind of guns blazing, like Mike, how can I make more of these? You know, give me your contacts. What do you think of this? And you know, he's always been a mentor. So we talked for two hours, and he kind of told me to to stay away from the clothing industry. That. Um, you know, what I'm doing with finance is the right thing and not to get involved. But he said that he'd order 10 hoodies at the same time. So, <laughs> um, so he ordered 10 hoodies. And this is crazy because I'd never even considered starting a clothing company. You know, I was quite lost working at this hedge fund or whatnot. So I'm walking back to SF State and this 
girl from like 40 feet away was like, hey, hey, hey. And she ran up to me and she was like, what are you wearing? And I was like, oh, this hoodie I made. And I was feeling quite good, you know? And she was like, <laughs> oh, what's your brand called? I was like, I don't have one. I go to school here. And she was like, well, I'm styling this new Clyde Carson video with Kanye in it. I'd love to get Clyde and Kanye in this hoodie. You know, can you make more? Do you have more? What's the deal with stores? So I um, wound up exchanging information. And then, you know, I'm sitting there in class and I'm just like, what just happened today? It's like the greatest <laughs> day of my life. And so this is all the same day? It's all the same day. Holy crap. This is all the same day. This was like... <laughs> Oh, okay, I'm lost here. I'm that's, found, right? That's and amazing. I'm sitting in class and I'm just thinking this through. I, I don't know where to start. I really like, I'm, I'm just quite paralyzed with the excitement and I don't know what to do with it. I don't really have any mentorship at this time <laughs> you can imagine or guidance. All, all I know is like I made this one thing and it's kind of interesting to people. So I get my act together. Two weeks later, I drop out of school. I borrow like $300 from my mom to buy more fabrics. I make this, um, I guess this JPEG and I put it up on Super Future and hype, you know, basically all these like fashion forums and I put like 12 different fabrics up and I say, hey, I'm selling these hoodies. I make them reversible. You pick two fabrics and make your hoodie in, in whatever size you want. Some in measurements if you want it custom. And I charged a pretty decent amount for it because I didn't know what to charge. And in the first 10 weeks, we made like 60 grand wow. Wow. from PayPal. That's and that amazing. was pre-Kickstarter. That was, in my mind, that was, I guess, a Kickstarter project. You know, within three months, I had, like, Kanye wearing it, and I had all these rappers wearing it, and this brand just went boom. And then these trade shows started offering me booths, and they offered to fly me to the locations, and it was just insane. I didn't know how to handle all this. I was, you know, like three months before, I was sitting in a, in a managerial finance class. And it was amazing to start doing something where it was culturally interesting, where there was a vibe, there was an energy to it. Uh, and now, rather than a, being a part of it through being a consumer, I was able to, to kind of add value to it instead of just consuming it. What do you think was so unique and interesting to others about the hoodie? This was kind of the first cut and sew streetwear. And it was during a time where people were just buying blanks from companies, blank T-shirts, blank hoodies. You know, nobody was really doing cut and sew. And nobody was really making uh, statements with it. And I think a lot of these products had a lot of statement on them just because they were kind of pattern heavy at a time when things where pattern didn't really exist. Everything was quite bland at that time. At least that was the trend. And this was kind of countercultural in a sense. And not in a way of countercultural like music is, but countercultural in a sense of what streetwear looked like. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of on the cusp. And, you know, to me, it was heavily influenced by what was happening in, in Japanese streetwear. You know, like when I was picking these fabrics, it was kind of going back to the roots of like, you know, Cal's surplus on hate where, you know, where you just buy workwear and you buy military gear. But then this was reappropriated. It looked like workwear military gear, but in much punchier colors. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the wearability of the one side where you could reverse it to something super punchy on the other side. Yeah, I think that must have you know, helped the fact that it was so versatile. But I don't know, it's just a hoodie in the grand scheme of things. You know? but, um, but what that did was it, it started giving me uh, opportunities. It started uh, giving me connections to people that were much more interesting and were doing really cool things. And, you know, I think that's kind of how the world works. And that's what creativity is, right? It's, it's, putting, it's putting an idea out there 
and then naturally people gravitate towards it and then you kind of get on this you know you get on this journey with these with this new community that that you never met before and it's a a cyclical inspiration kind of cyclone that just sweeps the rest of your life yeah. And you've shared this story with us when we when we talked a while back. I was always saying how much I've loved it. It was very inspirational is where you took it next with Kanye. And I'm wondering if you would share it again. How did you get connected to him then? I heard that uh, Kanye was launching a brand called Pastel. And uh, I had emailed him a photo of him wearing one of my homeroom pieces. And I said, hey, I heard you're, uh, you know, you're starting to launch this brand. I mean, literally within five minutes of sending that email to Kanye, I got a reply back. I'm in L.A. This is the address. Meet me here in, in a day or two. Let me know. <laughs> you know, that was it. <laughs> and so I get on a plane and then boom, uh, you know, we're in Kanye's studio with all these amazing people. And, you know, it's going a million miles a second. And I'm, I'm definitely a bit like out of my depth because like here's all these people that I've looked up to like for a very decent portion of my life and that have, you know, given me uh, energy and excitement through music. And at the same time, these directors are coming in and out of, and I'm seeing their, you know, art direction process and these builders and architects. So I just want to back up a second to that moment. Like what was going through your head? Like when you're sitting on the plane down to LA, like what, what were you thinking about that moment? Like, what do you think you were getting yourself into? I was thinking that I don't have enough money to get a rental car. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, how am I going to get down to Fairfax? Um, you know, no, I was, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into. I had um, a suitcase full of samples that I was going to put on Kanye and and see if he liked it. I didn't know if it was a job interview. I don't know if he just, you know, wanted to kick it or what. But I got there and he was like, hey, you want to stay a while and work on this collection I'm doing with Gap? And I was like, sure. And then, you know, he started really kind of showing me all those mood boards that he had up. And we started talking about his his line as well that he wanted to create. It was just unbelievable, to be honest, because, you know, one, like I mentioned, there's all these uh, amazing inspirational people around. But two, it's like, you know, I'm 25 at this point. Like, what am I doing around here? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I'm being someone that loved his music before anyone knew who he was when he was producing Blueprint 1 and seeing K. West on Jay-Z's Blueprint album in the credits, you know, when you used to buy CDs and you would actually look through the cover and see yeah. who the producers and writers were. So, like, knowing who he was there from his first work to, like, sitting there and he's like, hey, we're going to go to the fabric store, you know, and being at the <laughs> And it was like, what is, what is going on? And, you know, it was cool because from him, what I learned a lot was about integrity and soul and dreaming with no fear. And without kind of having confidence and not having fear, you, you don't really know how to push your vision to the limits. You know, someone needs to kind of extract that out of you. Mm-hmm. And I've been fortunate to have both in my life that um, have helped me realize those things because I was definitely, you know, uh, there's been moments where I've been naive or didn't push myself hard enough or was too scared to dream or, or didn't realize that I, uh, what I was doing, um, I was just naive to the fact that you know, maybe some decisions I was making, sign decisions I was making, didn't have the integrity that it should. You know, and I think Kanye, uh, for the short time that I did work with him, I got a lot out of it. And he, uh, I wouldn't say mentored me or anything, but I definitely picked up a thing or two. You know, he's, he used to say this thing. He was like, that needs more soul, that needs more soul. And I, I understood it at first. From a stylistic point of view, I was like, 
soul, like what, like 70s polyester avocado colored fabric? Like, what do you, you know, what do you mean? But, but what he meant was that it needed to be more timeless. It needed to have a reason that was far beyond uh, us and us um, having a gravitational desire towards that object. I remember us kind of working on this, uh, on this jacket. And it was just like, <laughs> it was funny. It was, a, it was a pink neoprene trucker jacket. <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying like, that needs more soul, that needs more soul, you know? Oh, and it, the reason he was saying it was because it was neoprene. It was, it was a soulless fabric. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was something that wasn't going to have a life outside of six months. It was something that was going to be a throwaway. Right. You know, at the time when you're 25 and you're really into style, 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 everything's about style. And you're not really thinking about the deeper connection that it has to society or culture. You know, those little moments really kind of uh, formed my opinion quite heavily. That, that's, so, that's so great. I mean, I really like hearing you talk about what it was like to be in that environment with, with all these real heavy hitters that all of a sudden you're cast into, into that situation. Um, but I wonder, you know, like obviously Kanye saw something in you to, to bring you down and have you be a part of that environment. Like, what do you think he saw in you and what did you bring to that relationship? Um, I was, I was really into fits and silhouettes. Like at that time, I wasn't necessarily trying to design overcomplicated things. I was really trying to uh, give more expression through silhouette and really creating kind of drama and attitude. So I had this blue jacket that I made for him where, you know, usually on jackets, the back is quite longer. But uh, I did kind of a reverse pitch where the back was a bit higher and then it kind of kind of ballooned in the back a bit, mm-hmm. kind of bolstered in the shoulders, but then kind of came right back down and s- slim into the waist, you know? And when, when you put that on, it looked like it, it looked like you were moving. It looked like, it just looked cool, you know? Mm-hmm. It didn't look like you were standing still. And I think that's kind of what he really liked, and that's what he used to say a lot. He was like, you know, like, you really have a good eye for fit. You, you say, you know, Kanye didn't directly mentor you, but, you know, we are mentored and directed and helped by so many people in our lives and our careers. And um, people like him are in their positions that they are because they can make things happen. They see things or whatnot. And they often, you know, have access to so many different types of people and things out there that they start to develop this pinpoint sense of picking things out, whether it's something really different, something with soul, something with life that, that, shines above all the other noise. And that's what I love about people like that who can jump in and just see something that's different and then they take it and run with it. Obviously in your jacket, it had something behind it. It is that soul piece. It's that piece that nobody really knows quite what makes it so attractive, but it was obviously attractive to lots of people. So there was something behind it that usually comes from the person who made it. Maybe you could just uh, tell us a little bit about what you, what you took away from that whole relationship um, and how it informs what you're doing now, because obviously it sounds like it had a big impact on you and your career. Uh, The one thing that really stuck, you know, throughout that experience was that Kanye would always ask people what they thought of things. And it wasn't because he didn't trust his own judgment but it was because he was just naturally curious, you know, how these creations, these ideas that he was having in his mind were 
were going to be uh, anticipated, how they were going to be reacted to, and how people would digest it. And I think that is something that the job of a designer, uh, unless you're doing art projects, you have to consider constantly, you know, is this for your audience and how is your audience going to really react to it? And I think that was the biggest takeaway, you know, to see someone like him, you know, 50 million Grammy Awards and still asking people for their opinion, you know, asking interns, you know, asking me, asking his managers, asking, you know, people that are running his company. I mean, he would ask everyone, you know, he was quite a humble guy. It teaches you a lot, doesn't it? When you're young, it's not what you expect from people who have achieved a lot. No, and everyone was really nice, too. Everybody was so nice, <laughs> nice people in the world. You know, these people are, you know, are extremely talented and have worked really hard for their success. And I think they're quite happy people because they've achieved it. Nice, nice. Well, how did that then lead you on on your path? Like you ended up next at Levi's. Yeah, so Levi's was quite interesting. You know, with Homeroom, I didn't really have uh, a marketing budget with Homeroom. I just had a blog because it was 2009 and the markets were really bad. You know, at that time we had 200 plus accounts and I think like 100 of them went out of business and the rest weren't really paying bills. So mm-hmm. I paused designing in new collections because there was two in the pipeline. And I started working with Kanye. And then um, when the Kanye thing finished, I didn't really have much going on. I didn't want to go back to do my business because there's really no accounts there. And, you know, direct-to-consumer wasn't a thing really yet. Mm -hmm. It was just starting to happen. And so I put on my blog that uh, I stopped working with Kanye. And someone from Levi's who had been a customer and someone that followed the Homeroom blog emailed me and said, are you looking for a job? And... I replied back, you know, what do you mean? They're like, oh, just come in and meet some people. So I came in and met the design team at Levi's and I brought kind of my samples and they asked me the next day to come and be a part of the design team there, which was really nice, you know, in the grand scheme of things to to kind of walk into such a great opportunity at a brand that just has, you know, masters. Like truly, you know, people have been honing their craft for 30 years and still don't feel like they've accomplished anything. What did they want you to do there when they brought you in? You know, we had quite a really dynamic, engaging leader. And <laughs> he was like, you know what? You're young. You're going to take chances. And we want you to work on the biggest part of the business. And so <laughs> they brought me in, you know, to kind of, I don't know, liven up, youthen up. I don't really know uh, what term to use without it sounding too corporate, but to really kind of give their their business uh, kind of a new look, a new feel. And it was quite interesting trying to find the balance of Levi's and who their customer was versus what I was doing with my brand. You know? Like I can just imagine stepping into a corporate environment like that they must spend tons of money on research and and really trying to understand at a very deep level who their customer is. Is that the case? Because I imagine it must have been a very different situation than what you were doing with Homeroom. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I rebelled against it. And I, um, I told them that their customer profiles aren't accurate, <laughs> you know? Because the thing is, you know, with having Homeroom, I spent four years in the stores talking with buyers and Mm -hmm. I knew who the customers were for certain, you know, for certain demographics. Right. So I think their understanding what the valuable accounts were, weren't correct. Mm -hmm. Their understanding of, of uh, what consumers, the next consumer, you know, the next trend wasn't correct. And 
I really rebelled against it, and I was naive enough to to defy it. I guess I think uh, the leadership team there kind of I think they kind of respected that a bit, you know, mm-hmm. um, a bit. I say not a lot because it, it was definitely not like the corporate way of doing things. But you know, I started on this collection uh, that was about like two point three billion uh, worth of sales for them. And my boss's boss quit, then eventually my boss quit, and then it was me on this collection with uh, kind of, I guess, two assistants. And it was kind of insane. But at the same time, at Levi's, with the prices that you had and the cotton crisis that was happening, you couldn't really design things that um, were complicated. You didn't really have budget to do that or, or permission. So we started talking about what is workwear, and where we arrived was that workwear isn't mining. You know, people go to work on their bike. So we created a new workwear collection, a new type of workwear, which is called the commuter series. And that really changed the landscape of Levi's because it was their first big commercial success in a long time. And that collection went from zero to 250 million overnight. It was quite great to know that you can, you know, rebel against the system uh, that is quite old because uh, the company's 135 years old. And you can have a breakthrough as long as you build the right relationships with people that are willing to, you know, to take a bet on your ideas. And so I think together as a group, it really kind of created this like a wow moment. You know, this is kind of a big thing, like, you know, to move a, a giant oil tanker like Levi's into a new direction. You know, I think a lot of people didn't believe that could happen. And then when it happened, everyone got on board quite quickly. That was quite a success there. You know, I think anyone that's worked in a big corporate company knows how hard it is to get an idea over the line. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, I was really thinking about the, the workwear piece and, um, you know, people obviously wouldn't necessarily think of that as a commuter series. And you have a history in, in biking or an interest in biking. How did that come about? coming from a cycling direction for Levi's? There was uh, a guy named John Colonna uh, that worked at Levi's. You know, we're both really into kind of Japanese streetwear quite a bit, and he was wearing these Levi's jeans that you can only get in Japan that were designed by this guy named Hiroshi Fujiwara. And Hiroshi brought track bikes to Tokyo, or at least he popularized track bikes, him and this guy Hiroki Nakamura that does Visvum. And... You know, he had made these Levi's pants that were a little more sporty or Levi's jeans that were a bit more sporty. And John and I were kind of looking at those and saying, like, you know, th- this is an amazing streetwear thing, but it's not really rooted in anything functional. What if, you know, what if we created a, f- a functional line of denim? You know, with Homeroom, I had a lot of kind of city cycling stuff. And I think it would spin on John's mind for a couple of years as well. And it was just kind of this natural merger, you know, where I've been thinking about it for a couple of years, he'd been thinking about it for a couple of years, there's kind of this um, style muse, you know, that, that we both kind of gravitate towards, and uh, it was just like, right, let's do this. And at first, I think people thought we're crazy, but, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to put Levi's and cycling in the same, in the same sentence. But, but now it totally out. makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine Levi's without commuter series now? No. Like, yeah. It's what's defined it over the last five years. So then how did you transition from Levi's to Giro? Yeah, Levi's was tough. 
you know, meaning like it was really educational. You definitely learn a lot and you get what you put into it. There's loads of experts there, you know, people that are true indigo gods <laughs> that really obsess and, you know, love the fabric and are passionate about how the fabric was in the chemistry of developing the perfect shape, but also, you know, how do you recreate uh, a look, a feel um, that expresses a time, an era of, of history. I felt like I wanted to learn other things as well. You know, I was really drawn towards technical and towards function because for me, it wasn't just about storytelling. I wanted something to function in a way that um, could truly benefit and add value to people's lives. I didn't really know much about it, you know, like I was a consumer of technical clothing, but, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know the difference between all the DWRs or, you know, uh, hydrophilic versus hydrophobic membrane, <laughs> you know, all this stuff at Levi's, I had no, you know, no idea about. Jiro reached out to me, which was really interesting because, um, you know, I'd, I've always been into kind of riding a bike, but never, you know, cycling for sport. And I thought that was going to be the ultimate challenge. And I felt like I was going to be really out of my depth and I was going to just learn loads, you know? So I kind of came into Jiro and they're like, right, we want to launch a clothing brand in a year. You have a year to kind of get it off the ground and here's, here's the budget to do it. And it was great because it wasn't just clothing that I was working on, you know, I was working with um, a partner on footwear and, you know, he was bringing me into helmet meetings, footwear meetings, and we were really kind of collaborating on a lot of ideas and really kind of uh, putting Jiro into a new direction and really creating a line that was going to, you know, completely shock and disrupt the cycling system. And so it was all kind of based about really thinking about things that uh, are tradition-based if they're important or not, if you take the tradition out. And we really started the process of looking at the footwear, the helmets, and the apparel through, okay, if, if we didn't look into tradition, what would you wear? How would you wear it? What would it look like? And that's where kind of New Road happened. And it was definitely quite disruptive. And I think people that are quite progressive adopted it quite quickly. And, you know, I think the footwear that came with it and the helmets that came with it also kind of set a new standard for style. And now it's becoming the norm in the cycling industry. It teaches you a lot about doubt everything, challenge everything. Mm -hmm. Don't don't settle on tradition. Like tradition is cool and, you know, some people can say that's where integrity is, but other people can say integrity is doubting everything and questioning why things exist. The the idea of doubting everything, sometimes the doubt can go can be pointed in the wrong direction. It's about progress, right? Like we as humans, we've gotten to where we have gotten to through progress, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. Like heritage is, is really cool as, as an emotion. It's really cool as, as a reference point, right? And you have to know where you came from to go forward. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. to do the same thing over and over and over, like I'm out. Mm -hmm. I do not want to do that with my life. I do not want to do the same thing more than two times, yeah. you know? Well, like, especially if it inhibits the, um, the, you know, the overarching goal of what it is you're trying to create, right? So, you know, with, with Giro Neuro, you're talking about function. And with Levi's, you're talking about function and having that lead the design process. And if you're overly focused on, on heritage and tradition for its own sake, I think those become two conflicting goals at some point. Yeah, I mean... You know, I've never worked at a traditional outdoor company, and I've I've uh, I've 
I have some friends, you know, at Arcteryx and Patagonia. They're definitely pushing boundaries as well. Like, I know they have loads of heritage, but I guess I don't see them looking at heritage that much, you know. I think those guys are definitely super progressive and doing amazing things that are really forward thinking. Well, and also you were saying you know, designers in general sometimes do have a hard time speaking up or... I think sometimes they have a hard time speaking up because they often don't feel listened to. Because I do think designers in general, the ones that I know, are really passionate. They have a lot of forward-thinking ideas. But there is a lot of um, hitting of walls and frustrations or communicating the ideas in the way that can actually get through, get the message through. And it's a constant balance of push and pull, of knowing when to push, when to speak up, um, and when to move on. I think knowledge is power. You know, if you know what the consumer wants and you can communicate that, you could vocalize it, you could create a business case for it. You could show how the customer experience works from web to in-store to wholesale. And then you design backwards into the product. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. who can say no to you? You probably are the most, you know, the most tuned-in person if you can cover all those grounds. And so, you know, rather than working in an organization where you kind of have a specialty for someone that does merchandising or wholesales or, mm. you know, VM or, you know, consumer research. If, if, if you could be that one person that does all that um, and make informed decisions, mm-hmm. then there shouldn't be anything holding you back because then your decisions are based on what people need and want rather than what a brief says. It's a much more holistic approach to design. And it has to be. It has to be yeah. because you can't design in a bubble or in a vacuum. And it has to be with, with your customer. Like, it's all about getting to know your customer. You know, un- unless it's an art project. If it's an art project, have at it. You know, it doesn't matter <laughs> where it comes from. But, you know, but to me, design is the intersection between art and commerce, not just art. Right, it is. And so if you don't understand the commerce part, then you, you can't begin to design. And I, I, I think the issue with the school systems for designers is they don't teach you the commerce part. They don't teach you how to run a business. They don't... They don't teach the designers what makes a business work. And then you have kids coming out of Central St. Martins that are expressionists, but they call themselves designers. <laughs> I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Absolutely. And, and I do think that sometimes uh, the, the education system provides that and then also the expectation in hiring from some companies, too, is that perpetuates that myth of what a designer is or, or does and uh, just put them over in the corner and let them, you know, make pretty things and whatnot and not involve them in the process. That can happen as well, which also doesn't do the whole process uh, a service in any way. You know, I think that's fine if they're taking direction and they're learning, right? It's all part of the education and experience process and going through the ranks. But businesses, companies, foundations have to be set up with that mentality that, that we're going to nurture these people yeah. and make sure that they're taking a holistic point of view. I could just talk about that forever right now. That's why we are doing our conference and these podcasts um, is to really help designers and the industry understand that process. I wanted to move on to talking about your next step from Jira. You then got approached by Rafa in the UK uh, for their design director position. How did that come about? Um, Just friends friends putting friends together, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it was an opportunity to work for uh, something that I've always wanted to do, you know, and that is to create the best product in the world mm-hmm. without restrictions on budget, 
uh, without restrictions on mind space um, and work for a brand that's quite young and has done a lot in the short time and also work for Simon. Uh, Simon's the founder of Rafa, you know, who's an um, incredibly brilliant individual that, that for me is quite important, you know, to mm-hmm. work with people that um, you see as a mentor. And so the opportunity itself was also another one of those challenges where I felt like, wow, I'm going to be in over my head. But I think whenever you feel like you're about to be in over your head, that's, that's what you have to jump into. It's, it's one of those uh, labors of love. It's, it's a true passion. And it, it is about pushing boundaries forward, creating energy and product and an innovation uh, without restriction, without limitation, really. Mm-hmm. And so there's quite a lot of opportunities uh, working at Rafa. You get approached by some of the world's most interesting companies to co-collaborate on technologies, on ideas, on... Um, on ways of creating new experiences for individuals. It's everything from working in wind tunnels to working with famous architects to working with you know, the world's most um, respected technology companies. And it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's electric. It's a very natural progression on this path of where you've come from to uh, to get there it's like that you know you're getting into the more the most technical and very specifically designed very high quality and young as you said but also a very impactful brand yeah um you know i don't know how biased i am because i <laughs> I've, I've felt this way before i worked there but i think it's it's such an energetic company you know mm. And I think the impact that it's had on other on other leaders, you know, I have some friends that work at some at some really interesting companies and the amount of times that they say that they, you know, use something from Rafa as inspiration to kind of show how their companies should function. It's it's incredible how often you hear that. Yeah. You know? And you know, to me, the crew that's at Rafa, the team that's there on on, you know, in all departments, they're just they're rock stars, you know? Because mm-hmm. I because I think a lot of them haven't necessarily been restricted with their thinking. You know, their thinking is freed. Where in other corporate companies, you know, your thinking is definitely restricted to you know to the way that companies operated for you know for decades. Yeah. Um, that's the difference I think is having a strong leader that has a vision, but also being able to express your point of views uh, and and having the time to kind of execute against them as well. Well, speaking about that that you know, strong leader. I want to talk a little bit about leadership here. Just before you headed to London to, uh, to join Rafa, we had a conversation about design leadership. And I remember us talking about that, you know, you were stepping into this new role that was going to be much more of a, of a leadership role and talking about the, uh, the new skills you would have to build in that. How has that played out for you? What have you learned? The one thing that I learned is that it's all about getting the vibe right of your team, you know, getting the, I don't know what you would call it, uh, and, you know, social engineer or whatever, but just making sure that you have people that complement um, each other's strengths. You know, having a really balanced team is about having people with strengths and weaknesses, but making sure that those strengths and weaknesses don't necessarily overlap strength, strength, but that someone's strength is someone else's weakness. And, and we all have strengths and weakness, myself included, you know. So it is about building a team that can, one, complement each other, but also to support and complement myself. And 
I think that's kind of the natural ecosystem where one, it's about camaraderie. Two, it's about taking care of them, you know, and really loving the team because I spent most of my life with them. Um, three, it's about inspiring each other. And four, it's about making sure that the, that the work-life balance is there. <laughs> yeah, but I think, um, I think that's, you know, that's really it, the essence of it. You know, I think great, good managers focus on the work to be done and great managers focus on the people doing the work. And I think that's, I think that's really true, you know, making sure that it's not just everything on the list is being accomplished, but that the people that are doing the work are, are doing it in a way that is fulfilling to them. And that, like you said, their strengths and weaknesses are balanced with one another and that everyone is, is working together and really integrated as a team because that's when, that's when people can do their best work when they know that, Oh, if I, if I am not following through on my responsibilities, not, that's not only going to hurt me, but it's also could potentially hurt the other people on my team. And because I care about them, I, I'm not going to let that happen. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's care. You know, like I treat, I treat everyone on the team, you know, like a, like, like it's a relationship, you know, cause it is. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, you wind up spending, you know, 12 hours a day with these people, like you kind of spend more time with them than you do with your closest family members, don't you? And so you have to look at it as a family. And, you know, I think it's, it's a natural thing that happens. You know, you do start looking at these people as your, as your brothers and sisters, you know, I don't really believe in the, in the standard, you know, uh, management style of, you know, uh, <laughs> manager, employee, that kind of stuff. Cause that's not what design is. Design is about vibing. It's about collaborating and you can't collaborate when there's hierarchy in between. Mm. And, you know, to me, what we're trying to accomplish is something that's greater than, um, each, each one of us can individually. Right. It's like the effect of where one plus one equals three. Like yeah. we're trying to create something that neither of us could have created on our own. And I think that's really important with building a team is getting people that are going to, you know, make you uncomfortable in the best way possible mm -hmm. to get, you know, to get the best out of yourself. And I definitely can say honestly that I have that, you know, and it is about kind of keeping that energy and that momentum, the team constantly renewed and fresh and making sure that you're getting these injections of, of inspiration and whether it's collaborators or teammates or new projects or new systems or you know, changing everyone's job role. <laughs> or, uh, well, we'll say, you know. say, say more about that because I think, I think in, you know, stay, as a designer, staying inspired is a really big part of the job um, or, or at least being able to look at the work in front of you with fresh eyes. And maybe you could just say a little bit more about how you approach that and, and how you create that for your team. Yeah, you know, I think... Uh, I think when you think about design, right, like some places that you work at where you just go in day in, day out, you're just moving lines on Illustrator, right? You're just moving seams around, right. you know? Sometimes yeah. I feel like design Christ, I've died for people's seams. Um, and other days I feel like I have, you know, I don't want to do that. And we get everyone just out of Illustrator and we say we're only going to work with our hands, right? And no one's allowed to use Illustrator. And I think that's where you can start creating because 
you know, you never get good design working in Illustrator. All the best designs come from when you're working with your hands, when you're working with fabrics. Absolutely. And to me, it's never about the design. It's about, you know, connecting with your customer. And it's us just, you know, being out of the office, hanging out, chilling um, within our stores or within the marketplace and going on rides with our consumers and talking to the regions about the customer and just being obsessed because to us it you know our customers aren't that that different from us right we're cyclists Mm -hmm. and so when you have that in common with your customer you know hanging out with them isn't necessarily a job you're just doing what you love to do and you're riding bikes and you're seeing the cycling community in their region from their point of view which is really interesting it's like being a foodie you know like who who doesn't like going to japan to eat ramen (laughs) even you, you know but that's what it is. Like, who doesn't like going to Tuscany to ride bikes? Right. Like, who doesn't like, you know, who that's never been to California is, is going to say, no, I don't want to go ride bikes in, in Marin Headlands with our best customers. Yeah, that's part of the job, <laughs> you know, and it's why designers do what they do and love what they do. It's just the illustrator or even, you know, the hands-on, the hand drawing and all of these, those are tools of communication. Um, sometimes I think people confuse that with, that's the design. You're sitting down and you're designing. Um, and that's just the means of communicating an idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like I was saying, like pushing lines around on Illustrator to create seams, this is not design. And to me, design happens after an incredible experience where you've discovered an insight or problem that you need to solve. And design happens on that, you know, train trip back or that taxi trip back or that plane trip back. Yeah. Like I've never actually designed anything in the office unless... <laughs> Unless I'm like, you know, creating mock-ups. You know, the offices for mock-ups, you know, the traveling is, is, is where you design. Because if you can't identify yeah. a problem or a new insight or a new need, you're not really designing. You're just moving scenes around. Yeah, getting and out I think, of here. And, and that's the issue. You know, I used, I used to work with this really brilliant guy, Carl at Levi's. who used to, you know, anytime people would just create a design illustrator, he would just call it stitch witchery, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and those um, of us old school sewers, we understand that. <laughs> stitch with you. Know, you're just, you know, you're just adding seams and stitch lines. and. Um. So then with that, in your career, you've worked on a lot of stuff. And uh, you know, it sounds like a lot of things that you're, that you're really proud of. And, but is there something out there, a piece or two, that, that you're most proud of? I don't know. Not really. I'm, I feel like everything... Could have been done better. I really do. I don't feel like I've I've ever had enough time to perfect anything. You know, yeah. I I just I really don't. And, and that might sound like if a customer is listening to this, they might sound like they're getting like the short end of the of the deal, but they're not. Like it's still really good stuff. But I just feel like I could have you know added half a cm to that pocket bag or you yeah. know, or, or gone to a twelve spi instead of a ten. <laughs> I mean. You know, I think anyone that's really in love with their job and what they do is always going to probably feel a bit dissatisfied with the work they create because, you know, if, oh, if I had just worked with that factory, you know, they would have really got that corner right. Yeah. Or, you know, there's always these little things that come up. Yeah, I, mean, um, I think there's that there's that hunger and that dissatisfaction that drives um, your next not maybe not best piece, but the next you, you're striving to always better yourself and better your work and better your outcome. Uh, and, and just to, to kind of to play off that, uh, what do you want to learn next? 
I think going forward, it's going to be more about actually going into product, going into structures, going into, mm. you know, things that will withstand a couple hundred years. You know, if I look at the natural progression of designing graphics and flyers, you know, those things last two weeks to doing T-shirts that last six months, to doing hoodies that last a year, to doing, you know, technical apparel that lasts, you know, 20 years. Like, I kind of want to start creating things that'll last 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, you know, like been spending some time with Norman Foster recently and you know he is he is the the living legend of our of our time mm-hmm. and and to see what he's done it, that's really inspired me in the last couple of months of spending time with him so mm-hmm. um yeah that's you know that's my ambition is to create things that'll withstand the test of time that seems to be uh you know the the talk now too in terms of also the idea of sustainability you know is Lasting design that makes an impact in a lot of positive ways. Yeah, I mean, him, you know, Norman Foster and, you know, the guy that mentored him, Buckminster Fuller. I mean, you know, those guys really put sustainability at the forefront, you know, Mm -hmm. over 60 years ago. And they've been practicing it ever since. And, um, yeah, it's really important. Uh, You know, I think sustainability is about (laughs) making things that, that satisfy a need, a function that, that don't, that don't make you feel like you need a void in your life to mm-hmm. consume again, right? Like if you buy something that's petroleum-based, it's amazing because you, you just need to buy it once, you know? Like I need to only buy like one, you know, one chair for the rest of my life, you know, like the Eames fiberglass chair that'll last, yeah. you know, a million years. And so that's nice because you could only, you only have to create as much as needed. But I think when you bring fashion or style or vogue into the mix, it starts creating a void people's lives that they otherwise wouldn't have had, you know, mm-hmm. unless something started feeling dated. And I think that's always the balance of trying to create something interesting and desirable that's new, but not so new that it's going to make people feel like it's dated and they're going to have to consume again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the issue is like, how do you create something, you know, how do you keep the industry going without making people consume over and over and over and right. over? That is really kind of at the heart of the mental space right now mm-hmm. is not necessarily, you know, making someone shop with you twice or three times or ten times, but getting more people to shop with you once. Yeah, I fa- actually... That's the complete opposite of how businesses are run. Absolutely. I think and if we look at a history of design and product and industrialization, we have created that sort of a business in a very short amount of time and in a very short amount of time have um, very much polluted our planet. Um, in the history of human existence, um, it is, it's pretty amazing. And it's nice to see that we're looking at turning that around. And I think that as designers, we are getting quite oversaturated with the idea of stuff and continuously producing massive amounts of stuff um, there's a lot of fatigue there and, uh, design can really change that. Yeah. I mean, I really give it up to Patagonia with their repairs. I mean, mm-hmm. we do repairs too, but I think that's, that's the best thing that brands can do yeah. is give repairs. We have a returns department and we have a repairs department and some of these repairs come back for their fifth repair. And we sometimes just like replace with a brand new thing, but I wind up keeping the repairs cause there's so much story in that <laughs> garment. Wow. Right, yeah. there's like ten thousand miles in that garment, or there's fifty thousand miles, or someone rode around the world in that garment, oh, awesome. and like the story that um, these things possess 
takes it outside of consumerism, right? Mm Because this is like your second skin. This is your token. This is what you accomplished these feats in. And to me, you know, it is about celebrating how that is used, right? Like, don't buy another one. Just get it repaired. We offer repairs. You know, I, uh, I know we're, we're, we have a lot of time on here. I just want to have one more question that I want to back up into is um, I don't hear a lot of people saying for what, you know, right now, um, what you're saying about being satisfied in that. I, I'm not hearing a lot of that. And this is, it's really wonderful to hear it. And it's wonderful to hear it from somebody who's leading a team and uh, working for a brand that is feeling really focused and positive. What we're seeing, especially over here on our side of the pond, is that the role of the designer is going through a shift. What are you seeing in that change? What what has the role of the designer been, you know, in the past decade or so? And and where do you think it's going? You know, I think we can parallel it to an industry like uh, like publishing, right? Where you have the merger of art directors and editors, where before the editor, the copywriter, and the art director were all three separate functions, and now. They've become one function known as the art director, the creative director. And I think that's because, um, you know, the definition of design is, is being popularized as art plus commerce equals design rather than just art. And I think the designer has the greatest capability to run a company. You know, I really believe that because someone that can understand how a product, an idea, a creative thought is put together, but also can understand how a business's brand understands the analytics of that. And I think that's what a lot of, um, you know, I see that starting to happen here and there. Because if you can truly, you know, actualize yourself to step outside of the role of designer, meaning, you know, fabrics and illustrator and patterns and fit, and really start understanding what the customer experience needs to be and how that how every other function hinges every other cross function hinges off of that customer experience and if you can kind of help everyone along that process into the same direction then I don't know I think we need to we need to come up with a new position (laughs) in the industry (laughs) right because that's what's missing I think and I think that's what's always been missing because a lot of times products are dictated by product managers and product managers a lot of times are just really organized people that, that don't have cultural insights. And um, I mean, for one, like at Rafa, we don't have product managers. You know, I think maybe that's why I'm so satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think here in Silicon Valley, you know, there is starting to be an, an understanding of that as well. You know, there are s- specific, you know, startup accelerators that are specifically funding companies that are founded and co-founded by designers. There are, um, you know, you know, people are really recognizing the value that designers can bring to the table and can bring to a business and are, and are looking to reward that. So I, you know, I definitely agree with that. I definitely think that the, the role of the designer will continue to expand and continue to have a, a larger impact on, on business and on society and on culture as a whole. Yeah. I think some people don't want to be defined as a designer, even though they are a designer. You know, I think I think there's plenty of CEOs out there that are in the in the truest sense designers, you know, like 
one, I guess, example that everyone knows about is like Steve Jobs. You know, he was a marketer, but you could argue that he was a designer. He had a vision of how he wanted something to look. Absolutely. And he hired people that could be his wrist uh, or he empowered people that were his wrist to kind of express themselves and he was able to direct it. And so, you know, being a designer doesn't necessarily mean like being able to draw beautifully. Right. Yeah. I think that's being an illustrator. Yeah. Being a designer is being able to create something. And and I don't mean, you know, open molds and pour plastic into them. That's a manufacturer. Yeah. Being a designer is being able to control every single part of the process that creates a new experience, mm-hmm. solves a problem, or really fundamentally just disrupts the marketplace and gives them something that no one expected. You know, when Henry Ford asked people what they wanted, they said faster horses. He gave them cars. And that also means that the uh, the education system, you know, prepping people for these types of roles, um, that's, there's going to have, have to be a shift in there as well. Yeah, I feel like, you know, as I get older, when I get older and I feel like when my kid starts going to school, that's probably something I'm going to want to probably want to start working on is, is, is those kind of policies. Because I think the education system, you know, when it comes to design, it's just not really, it's not, it's not producing the kind of talent that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. People come out of design school without any understanding of how how companies operate or work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, people come out of design school ready to be a pattern maker. And that's fine. That's what you want to do. But, you know, if, if you're going to have a degree that says a designer, you have to understand manufacturing, economics, you know, consumer distribution, warehousing, production, sourcing. I mean, there's, there's a lot to understand. And, you know, to come out and, and just, you know, know how to design a collection that's not good enough anymore well you said it really well perfectly thank you <laughs> yeah thanks for uh for chatting it's always good to you know to talk with people about this and it, it rarely happens you know because i yeah. think you know i think there's a lot of uh passionate people that have been in the industry for a while now that that see a better future for it and can envision how um, you could have much happier people and that's what at the end of the day that's what it's about it's about people really loving what they do. And I think we have responsibility to really create those environments for people. And yeah, then, well, think yeah. about it. Think about it. And, you know, it's funny you say Norman Foster. Uh, uh, I actually got to meet Buckminster Fuller when I was a kid. Um, my uncle was, was working with him and actually celebrated his, I think it was 80th or 82nd birthday party at our house in, uh, in Maryland. And, uh, I, you know, I must have been nine or 10 at the time. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, that my uncle, I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea who Buckminster Fuller was. You know, I just knew that, uh, my uncle was going to have his birthday party in my house. And then the, you know, so like I have three memories from that day. You know, one is that, uh, it was in the middle of summer and our air conditioning went out. And so we had to have this big party out on our back porch. And two, uh, they hired a belly dancer to come and perform for Buckminster Fuller. (laughs) (laughs) And then three was my uncle playing, uh, you know, playing the piano for Buckminster Fuller. So those are my three memories from that day. That's amazing. I didn't know this after 20 years. I didn't know this piece. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We talked about Buckminster Fuller. He never brought this up. Wow, love I was it. waiting for the right moment. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alex. I, I, I always love talking with you. We both do. I mean, I can see why you are where you are and what you're doing in your career path. It's, um, 
it's just it's really inspirational to to see where you've gone since we've known you in the last couple of years too and I just love talking with you. You just you say all the things that I'm thinking and feeling, and you just say it in a really eloquent way. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. This podcast is a project of Structure Event, the creative conference for the active outdoor and urban design industry. For more information about the podcast or the conference, check out our website at structureevent.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.